All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is May 24th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Hang in there. We will eventually get... Did you, are, have you been told we're all in this together? I, sometimes I'm fooled, but I am told we're all in this together. So we are, at least on this show, all in this together. We got a lot to get to tonight. I have been observing the back and forth in the inbox, and I've been observing not so much a back and forth, but just a you to me in the... Twitter DMs and whatnot, and I just have some stuff to address. It's not necessarily a Q&A show. We save that for the Late Kick Extra podcast, which has done phenomenal traffic. Really appreciate that. More later on that. So um, I'm going to go a couple of different directions tonight. I'm going to touch on things that I think pertain to a few programs, but expand well beyond those programs and probably pertain to, truth be told, most of you watching tonight, or at least the programs that you support and you root for. So this power shift... I don't know if you've heard about it. Thus far, as far as I can tell, it's just a rumor that's found in preview magazines and whatnot. But there is a rumored power shift happening in the SEC Eastern Division. We'll talk about that. I'm also going to talk about a program we have neglected. We're going to admit that later. And the wide range of expectations for LSU football this year. I can't tell you how many questions that we get about LSU, and they all loosely revolve around the same version of this question. What's reasonable this year? How are they going to do this year? How's quarterback going to look this year? So all that and more, plus we got some Q&A coming up, and uh, we don't have a documentary, I guess, worth watching tonight. I'm told there is one later on a four-letter network, but I don't think I'm that interested in that one tonight. So We're just going to do our show and then hang out afterwards, I guess. Let's get it started, though. The balance of power in the SEC Eastern Division hasn't been much of a balance. The seesaw has kind of squarely been tilted towards one side for a few years now, and that has been Athens, Georgia, and the Georgia Bulldogs. So now, all of a sudden, I'm being told by a lot of you, I don't know where I stand yet because I think it's very poor business to make predictions on a football season in the middle of May But prediction season, nevertheless, is about to be upon us. Now, you guys know how this works. I don't necessarily take part in it. I'm going to give you predictions later like anyone else does, but I'm not going to do it in May or June or probably even July or early August. But prediction season is so popular because prediction season is an all-reward, no-risk proposition. Everyone is happy to return to their July statements in December when they were right, knowing full well when they make the statement in July no one cares if they were wrong because there are going to be so many wrong predictions that one doesn't stand out over the rest. And so everyone runs their mouth in July and everyone this year, because there's nothing else going on, at least according to them, has been running their mouth in May. And so out of the mouths of many in our business and outside of our business has come this. There's a balance of power shift in the Eastern Division of the Southeastern Conference this year. And it's going from Athens, Georgia to Gainesville, Florida. Do we buy this? I know the reasons. You don't have to school me on the reasons, but there's a lot of Florida wins the East sentiment out there this year in my inbox and DMs and on Twitter and whatnot. So what's the case? And then I'm going to just walk you through this. I'm not taking a stance on this tonight, but I am going to walk you through sort of the way that I observe your line of thinking. Because it all really boils down to quarterback, and it boils down to schedule, and it boils down to coach, as far as I can tell, in thumbing through the reasons that you're giving me. You have got Jamie Newman coming in at Georgia. That's a question mark. Offensive line's a question mark there. Outside of George Pickens, most of you view the wide receiver position as a question mark at Georgia. 
Now, on top of all that, of course, you've got Todd Munkin coming in as offensive coordinator. You lose Spring. Who knows what's going to happen there? Also, Georgia's two cross-division opponents this year are at Alabama in Week 3 and, of course, Auburn. And because there's been all of this mess about COVID-19 and are we going to have spring ball? No, we're not. When's the season going to start on time? A lot of you aren't yet aware. A lot of you have not yet printed that SEC helmet grid schedule out that you normally do and pin it on your refrigerator. A lot of you aren't aware. We got Georgia at Alabama in week three this year, but yes, we do. So then you look on the other side and you see there's uncertainty at quarterback at Georgia. There isn't at Florida. We got Kyle Trask here. There is uncertainty with, for instance, the schedule that Georgia's got to play. Well, with Florida, they got Ole Miss from the West. And then of course they've got LSU, but is LSU down this year? And hey, even if LSU is pretty good, they got to come to Gainesville. And there's this overwhelming sentiment that again, I'm not really taking so much stance on tonight. In any given year, I don't know what it's going to matter, but there's this overwhelming sentiment. There always has been with Florida folks that if you get these rosters close, then game day coaching is superior at Florida. Therefore, we'll overtake Georgia. Just get us close. Just make it competitive. That's basically the sentiment. I think I've checked most of the boxes there as to what you guys are thinking. So there's an added concern here, and I really think that some of you guys hit on it, but the added concern and the one that's at the forefront of my mind when I look at Florida versus Georgia, I don't really care about the other stuff. That's more nuanced. That's more game by game. But this uncertainty with Georgia really independent of anybody else in the conversation, this is the name of the game. This whole new offensive coordinator, new quarterback, and most of the time, guys, when you go get a new offensive coordinator by your choice, not because a guy left for greener pastures, and you bring in a grad transfer quarterback, typically you're looking to change something. I think Kirby Smart himself would agree and would admit, yeah, we're looking to change or adjust or evolve something. What is that something? Or here's a better way to ask it. What was that something going to be? And is it still the same something without spring? So you ask, what did you lose in spring? Well, really all you lost is 15 practices, but really what did you lose? You lost critical install time and you lost a critical opportunity to mesh as a team, to gel as a team. That doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. But it's not just that. So now you enter into those whole Georgia-Florida balance of power nonsense. Not nonsense. I think it's nonsense because we're talking about it right now. But you enter into this conversation, and then you realize, oh, you got the same offensive coordinator you had last year in Gainesville. You got the same defensive coordinator you had last year. Got the same quarterback. Got the same head coach. So there's a lot of same, 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 same from a team that's run off a couple of New Year's Six Bowl appearances and wins. And then you got a lot of question marks with a team that has been better but these haven't been blowouts when these two have been on the field. They've been competitive both times. And so there's just a ton of shifting in Athens. And I understand all this. And here's the other thing that you have to remember. Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, whoever it is. When someone's winning a lot, no one outside of that fan base enjoys seeing dominance. It's not fun for anyone outside of you. Georgia fans, remove yourself from this conversation. No one who covers college football for a living and lives in St. Louis, Missouri, wants to log on and type out 1,500-word previews that consist of same old, same old, enter, send, done. 
because that doesn't attract many eyeballs. So by default, you're already looking for confirmation bias. And the bias is, I want to see change. I want to find any way possible. I'm going to overturn every stone possible to find a reasonable path for Florida to win the East. I'm not saying it can't happen. It certainly could happen this year. Again, this is not a prediction show tonight. I'm just telling you, that's why you see all this excitement and giddiness when these people are going on podcasts and writing in preview magazines and doing their 1,500, 2,000-word sort of preseason predictors online about who's going to win the East, and it's confirmation bias. But I look up and down the East, and this is kind of the way that I think in any division. I look, and here's what the first thing I want to know is. First thing I want to know is how many elite units are there over here? In this case, the here is the SEC East. There's one. In this entire division right now, there's one I know I can count on. I think Florida's offense is going to be really good. Do I know they're going to be elite? I don't know that. I've heard some people suggest they could make this now until the end of time. Someone's going to suggest someone's going to do this. This LSU-type leap. This year two, got the same quarterback in the same system, got things figured out now. This Joe Burrow, LSU-type leap. I think that's very unreasonable. It's unreasonable to expect from any team in any given year. Guess not impossible, but unreasonable. So I cannot count on Florida's offense to be elite. They may be. Maybe that's their ceiling. But Georgia's defense will be, and that's the only one I see over there right now. So when I'm starting in the next month or two, when I'm starting to develop my picture in my own little mental dark room, if you will, and the lights are slowly coming up, and I'm slowly starting to see the picture develop, the default I'm working off of is the one unit that's going to be the constant over here on this side of the, the um, SEC, and the one part, the one facet of any team that I know I can count on, I think I can count on at least, to show up 12 weeks is that Georgia defense. They're going to be insanely good. I don't even think some Georgia folks I talk to are aware of how good their defense is going to be this year. It's going to be the best defense in the country. Until someone proves me wrong, I'm working off the assumption Kirby Smart's got the best defense in the country this year. They are going to be good. They're going to be really good. And not only are they going to be good, they're going to be a really good hybrid version, maybe like Smart didn't have all the time at Alabama. They were either big or fast. They started that transition, but he's got athletes. You know, he's got athletes that they used to play at Jack Linebacker, maybe Edge Rusher, that are athletic enough now to play a couple of different spots for him in the middle. That's just how athletic they are. Defensive back play on that team will be out of this world. Corner play in particular will be out of this world. And here's what we've learned. As of late in college football, here's what we've learned. If you've got a truly elite offense, if you've got the best offenses in the game, you will score on any defense. Unless you're turning the ball over a bunch inside the five-yard line, you are going to score in that 28 to 34 point range minimum in a big game. That's what history has taught us. So I'm not telling you you can't score on Georgia. I fully believe if that team in red and black were to make it to the playoffs this year, and they run up against an Ohio State or Clemson or whoever it may be, Alabama, those teams are going to be able to score on them. They're not hanging 60-plus. They're going to be able to score on them. Here's what I'm asking you. We're talking about Georgia-Florida here. Does Florida meet that minimum baseline? Like, do they get over that line in the sand sort of point that you got to be in to where you're good enough offensively where you're going to be able to score on anyone? Your answer may be yes. Apparently a lot of your answers are yes, judging by my inbox. 
I may get there with you. I just don't know that I'm there right now. I'll tell you the game that, for obvious reasons, I think everyone has circled, and I'm no different than you in this camp. That game at Alabama for Georgia in week three is going to show you a lot because Alabama's going to be pretty good offensively this year. Alabama's got to change at quarterback, but they got two really good players at quarterback. They got a phenomenal offensive line this year. They got really good wideouts. They got a loaded running back stable. If Georgia goes into Tuscaloosa and Bama's struggling to score over 24 points, 28 points, if they're struggling to get in that range, Georgia's going to be able to do fine, and Georgia's defense is going to be able to beat whoever remains on their schedule in the regular season. They're going to be capable of doing that, and they're going to be capable of totally strangling you and taking over a game because that defense is going to be there early and often. Can't say the same about their offense, but then again, if you got a defense that is of that caliber, how many points you got to score? And how many points are you going to be able to score? So that's just my general, very initial take on the SEC East. You are certainly not going to turn on this program in May or June and hear me say, I've got predictions tonight for you. Not going to do that. Bad business. There, of course, is the model of the, what do they call them, Colin? The way, way too early prediction. Then the updated, the revised prediction. Then the pre-camp prediction. And then the actual preseason prediction not the model that we buy into here. Computer froze. Let me unfreeze that right quick. Uh, I told you, by the way, last week, <clears throat> had a new idea for the Late Kick Extra podcast, which we record on Tuesday and release on Wednesday. Now, the format's the same. The format is you send me questions. It's all Q&A. You're much better at writing my show than I am. So it's all Q&A in the email inbox or in Twitter or on Instagram, the DM features there. Or on the pinned comment right below the video you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube, then you can reply there. But we were thinking, what's a way to interact on the podcast platforms? And so pretty basic, you know, we may be kind of new to the platform, but you guys go there all the time and you give us five-star reviews, which are like gold to us. And you give us written reviews, which are like gold to us. Cause they're, I mean, they help us with the algorithm on Apple and Spotify and whatnot, but also it's good feedback. So. If you want another way to guarantee that your question gets answered on the Lake Kick Extra podcast, submit your questions in the written review section right there. Because I look at every single one of those, and those actually mean something. If you're watching us or if you're listening to us, I'm rubbing my hands together in a monetary type fashion. They help us in that way too. So there's just a little added bonus for you to give us a written review and include your question in the written review. So last, last show we did, I believe, we did a segment on Michigan and Ohio State, and it wasn't really a segment that it was built typically. Typically, I got a thought map that I go through, and I got a few extending points that build off a main point. Well, this last show, I had like five or six, it was kind of a fragmented segment. I had five or six things that I just felt like talking about, and they all had to do with Michigan or Ohio State, so I just kind of did a hodgepodge of points about Michigan or Ohio State. Put the video up, it did really good numbers. But then I was looking in the comments section, because I read all your comments too. And there were some Penn State folks that came in the comments section and said, why are you talking about Michigan so much? Like, we get you talking about Ohio State. What are you talking about Michigan so much? We're closer than Michigan. We've been more competitive with this Ohio State team than Michigan has. And we are a more dangerous threat to them this year than, uh, than Michigan is. And I thought about it. And they were right. We've been ignoring Penn State. I don't know why, I, we, but we've been sleeping on Penn State. So 
It looks like James Franklin, if you're watching the video version, is scolding us right now, and with good reason. So we've done all these segments about Ohio State and Michigan, and we're going to keep talking about the Buckeyes. Michigan got a, a big commitment today from Junior Colson right here, when I say in our backyard, right here in our backyard. Lives like two minutes from the building. So congratulations to Michigan, but we got to talk some Penn State, because you're right, I've overlooked them. This team, I mean, this program, I don't need to go down, you know, the website's official stat sheet for you, but I mean, they've won 11 games, three out of the last four years. They won the Big Ten back in 2016, which was, I think, the third year of James Franklin, second or third year there. But then you extend it to recruiting. And I'm just talking about the blueprint of what makes an elite program here, or at least a very good program. They've been top 15 every year since then. They, I think most importantly, have repaired their image from the scandal a few years ago to the point, at least as far as I can tell, where when we talk about Penn State, we're less than a decade removed from that garbage. And when we talk about Penn State, that's not at the forefront of my mind anymore. I don't know how your mind works. That's not at the forefront of my mind anymore, and I deal with college athletics 24-7, 365, so I feel pretty qualified to talk on it. That's my personal stance, and that's not by accident. They've done an exceptional job of repairing their image from what a few people did to their image. I mean, the vast majority were you know, not complicit in any of that. So they've done a really good job there. And so they've been extreme, you're right, they've been extremely competitive with Ohio State. I, I thought I had the stat in my head and I was right, but I had to go back and look. The last three years, they've been beaten by, I want to say it was one point, one point, and eight points or something like that. 13, it's a 13-point total gap over the past three games combined against Ohio State. So why in the world is it? Because then I started thinking about perception, and to make sure I wasn't crazy, I started texting some folks. And I said, when you think of the Big Ten, what's the hierarchy there? And there were some folks that said Ohio State, Penn State, but most of them did say Ohio State, Michigan. So I thought, why? Why is that? Here's the best reasoning I could come up with. The best reasoning I could come up with is, first, you could look at the head-to-head -head of Penn State, Michigan. And you can see that Nittany Lions, they've still dropped four of the last six in that series. If you had dominated Michigan, I think it may be a little bit different here. They have lost the last three to Ohio State, regardless of what the margins were. They have lost the last three. So I don't think, because it's a what have you done for me today and yesterday kind of mentality right now, people don't view them as being on the same plane as Ohio State. And um, they view them, I think, as comparable to Michigan. And the fact of the matter is, outside of Pennsylvania and outside of certain pockets in Big Ten country, if all things are equal or close to equal, the conversation is going to revert default style to Ohio State and, and then the and is going to be filled with Michigan. You got to make people, as far as I can tell, down here, outside of the Big Ten, you got to make people look away from Michigan. I think they're fully capable of doing that this year. So then that fast forwards us to 2020 and beyond. And I can't help, I'm going to say something here, and then I'm going to tell you what I didn't say. That's one of our approaches on the show. Make a statement, and then quickly, before you even get done in the comment section, tell you what I didn't say. Penn State reminds me of Clemson a little bit. Here's what I didn't say. What I didn't say is they're comparable to Clemson right now. I didn't say they're on par with Clemson. I didn't say that I'm picking them to win a national championship two out of the next three years, nothing like that. Also, I did not tell you that James Franklin is comparable or equal to or greater than Dabo Swinney, but here's what I do see. 
What I do see and what I remember about Clemson is I believe it was third year for Dabo. He won the conference there, and James Franklin won one very early on, first three years of his tenure at Penn State. But yet, no one really perceived them as having arrived nationally. I don't think. I, I remember that was the way it was for Clemson. And so remember the world you're living in. You're living in a world where someone can take over a program having never been a head coach before, like Kirby Smart at Georgia, and take him to a national championship the second year. Like Gus Malzahn took over Auburn, and in the first year he was there, they were in the national championship game. Ryan Day has taken over Ohio State, obviously seamless transition right to the playoff. Lincoln Riley took over Oklahoma, playoffs virtually every year. And so if you don't take over a program and immediately turn it into a playoff contender, then people sort of tend to put you on the back burner. They don't put you on the hot seat necessarily, but they put you on the back burner. And that's kind of how I feel Dabo was early on. Now, they eventually got there, and that's what I'm kind of leading to. They eventually got there, but it wasn't this immediate seismographic spike on a, on a, a radar. It was, give us a little while, got to get over that Florida State hump, got to get over a hump of thinking we're there, but then we get pasted in a game and we're not there yet. But then we, when we finally do get there, we are there. That may be the same kind of trajectory that James Franklin has Penn State on. Here's the big difference. Once they got Florida State out of the way, and Florida State, and I'm talking about Clemson, once Clemson got Florida State out of the way, and Florida State did a half-decent job of getting themselves out of the way, if we're being honest, but credit to Dabo and Clemson for taking full advantage of it. Once they got them out of the way, there was nothing else standing in the way. There is a giant standing in the way. There are a couple of them up there, but there is one notable giant standing in the way of Penn State. And that's the difference between the setup, one of at least, the differences between the setup that Dabo Swinney had at Clemson and James Franklin his here. They also remind me in some ways of Notre Dame. And the way they remind me of Notre Dame right now, and I'm speaking specifically as an outsider, not, not a fan of these programs, not someone who grew up around them, trying to give you an outside perspective. Notre Dame, I was talking to Brian Kelly when we did the interview with him for Social Distance a couple of three weeks ago, and you're looking at their resume. And if you just kind of did a blind resume test and you looked at the fact that they're a double-digit win team four out of the last five years, um, they're recruiting at a level consistently now, the likes of which they haven't in a very long time. They've been there. They've been to the playoffs a couple times, been to the playoff in a national championship game a couple times the last decade. But since they haven't won one, and since they've never stepped on the field with those elite teams and been viewed really as the equal of those teams, in other words, it's going to take a few bounces of the ball to go their way, and they're going to have to win the turnover battle by plus two, but they can get it done, but they're going to need some help. That's kind of the way you feel when Notre Dame's on the field with an elite team, and that's probably the way you feel when Penn State plays Ohio State. They may not feel that way, but probably outsiders feel that way. How do you elevate your program? Well, you elevate it through developing and recruiting, but like Notre Dame, and I've said this about Notre Dame, I'll say it with Penn State. I'll say the same thing with Michigan. All these programs. I know you've thrown Taj Boyd in my face if you're a Clemson fan, but um, I'll maintain my stance. It was when Deshaun Watson walked in the door at Clemson that all of a sudden they went from a cute ACC story that's going to you know, run into a Mack truck if they ever make it to the playoffs to a team that could really compete for a national championship and then a team that can win a national championship, 
And then once they win the national championship and you see superstar quarterback play, then there's this stream of talent. Clemson wasn't recruiting top five classes before that. They certainly are now. And they've had this steady incline and the trajectory has been steadily pointed upwards of recruiting, of development, facilities are great. I'm not saying you lack facilities or anything like that at Penn State, but what happens if that occurs? Same kind of quarterback dynamic. What happens if that finally occurs at Penn State? Because it hasn't yet. You thought Hackenberg was going to be that? He wasn't. What if it does happen there? That's what I always wait on. With a program like Michigan, program like Penn State, program like Notre Dame, I wait for either a superstar quarterback to be recruited by them and choose them, or I wait for maybe a high four-star kind that they do land to blossom once they get there and get developed, and it's just you catch lightning in a bottle, and boom. Once that happens, program takes off, and that's kind of the trampoline bounce that you need to get into that top tier. And once you're there, it's like watching that Ninja Warrior show. You know, you jump and you grab onto the monkey bars, but once you got them, you got them. And then you pull yourself up and then you're there. That could be Penn State. You know, we are Penn State. You could be. That could be Penn State. And I pull for it, just like I told you the other day, get um, accusations of homerism and bias all the time. I just root for the big time teams to be good. And I get berated for it all the time by our G5 brethren, but sue me. I pull for the big-time brand-name programs to be good. I remember when – when did you guys do that home-and-home home with Bama? It was like 2010, 11, or something like that. I remember that, – that was scheduled so far in advance. So I remember being in high school in the early 2000s and looking at all the future college football schedules. And I, now I didn't know who the Alabama coach was going to be. Obviously, I didn't know it was going to be Nick Saban, but I knew it was Joe Paterno. And you guys know, um, I grew up very much a college football fan in general, and I always thought to myself, like, that's the only shot I'm going to get at seeing Joe Paterno coach. So if the time comes and I can afford tickets to that game, I'm going. So the time came and I got to go. And I got, as it turns out, I got to see Paterno and Saban coach. So stands to reason, I have full respect for the brand and the program there. And I look at the helmet grid schedule for this year, pulled one up for the Big Ten today. And that October 24th date, Ohio State and Penn State, sure does look tempting, especially because it is, to me, it's the game of the week that week. Now, I may not get to experience your full game day atmosphere. Never been to a Penn State game. And I, you know, I'd love to experience a night game, whiteout, et cetera, but I just love to go to Beaver Stadium, honestly. We'll see if we can make that happen. As I said, the inbox has been flooded. I mean flooded. Whatever, whatever our floodplain is, it is overflown by weeks and weeks and weeks now of questions about LSU. Not just from LSU fans. This is why I'm addressing this tonight. Um, a lot of you, well, LSU fans ask in a more honest, inquisitive manner, how good, are we gonna, how, how good do you think we're going to be this year? And then other people ask in a more sarcastic manner, there's no way you think LSU is still going to be good this year, right? The general quotes that I get from people that aren't LSU fans is, well, LSU's not going to be what they were last year. And my response, I don't always give it to them in person, but I'll just give it to you blanketly here as we look at footage of me stalking Ed Orgeron off the field in the national championship game. My, my response is, firstly, who says that they're going to be as good as they were last year? I, I know a bunch of LSU folks. I don't know a single one that has told me, oh, I think it's a repeat, man. I think we're about to duplicate what we did last year. Who has said that? 
No one, has, no one in their right mind has said that. I don't think anyone expects that. Number two, here's really the most important question to follow up, is do you know of anyone else that's going to duplicate this year what LSU did last year? Because if there's not going to be that, then they don't need to duplicate what they did in order to be a contender for a national championship. Now that we have those two premises, premi, premisi, let's check the plural on that. Those respective premises, once we have those out of the way, now we can start diving in a little bit. And we ask ourselves, as you have, as I said plenty of times, what would be reasonable in the expectation department for LSU in 2020? As I said, it's not a preview show tonight. It's not a prediction show tonight. Two things that I think I know. It's kind of a segment we do during the season. I think I know, fill in the blank. I think I know LSU's roster will be talented and skilled enough to go 12-0 this year. I also think that there are enough questions on their roster and there are enough holes to fill and their schedule is difficult enough to see them go in eight and four. So how about that for nailing myself down to the wall? Somewhere between eight and four and 12 and 0. But here's my larger point. Again, as we sit here, May 24th, larger point is this. If you were to break out a magic eight ball, if Colin walked in here tonight, he said, look what I found in the office, magic eight ball, you shake it, What's LSU's record going to be this year? And it spits out 10-2 and two at me. Or 9-3. and three. I still don't really know anything. If we're talking about the long-term health of this program, if we're talking about the sustainability of the model that we saw them use last year and the DNA, that's kind of the, the adage I keep coming back to. If we're talking about duplicating over the long term what we think they instilled in that program last year, your record doesn't tell me a thing this year unless it's 12 and 0, in which case I'm pretty sure we have a conclusive answer. But are we talking team or program? Last year, the 2019 LSU Tigers, was that a team or was that a program? Because you're talking DNA. Every team takes on an identity and a life of its own. A program's a program, but a team is one year's version of that program. And what you don't want to see, your biggest fear as an LSU fan, and your biggest hope if you're an outsider, is that team, truly was lightning in a bottle, and they were, in the meteorological world, this is going to be nerd alert, they have what they call closed lows. They're like little bowling balls. I remember we used to get them sometimes. It's the best chance for snow if you live in Georgia. They'd, they'd kind of roll out of Arkansas, and they'd come through, and you can't forecast them days in advance. But the thing about a closed low is it's kind of providing its own energy. It provides its own cold air. It's like it's independent of what else is going on in Montana or Maine or anything. And then once it's gone, it's just gone. You certainly hope that's not what LSU's 2019 team was, where they were just this entity in and of themselves that rolled through Baton Rouge and it was a magical ride and you'll remember it for the rest of your life and keep the t-shirt. But then once they're gone, when we're sitting here in 2025 telling the story, once they were gone, Everything just returned back to normal. Normal for LSU would still be really good, but after you got a taste of last year, that's not what you want anymore. So, you know, I remember standing on the field when they're playing Alabama, and it's standing out to me so much that they were the aggressor. They were going into an environment that had crippled them mentally so many years in a row, and they didn't care. They put Alabama on skates early and often, and they dictated terms in the game. They did that in all the big games that they played last year. And for the first time in a long time, not only did you see offensive modernization, if not innovation, you also saw skills 
You also saw a skill set offensively being properly utilized for the first time, it seems like, in forever. You saw them take the fight to you, and you saw them forcing you to adjust to what they did instead of the other way around. Now we get to this year, and we talk about you telling me what they're going to do record-wise meaning nothing. Here's what I really mean by that. If Colin shakes the aforementioned magic eight ball, and it spits out 10 and 2, but the two losses are going to be by 14 and 23 points respectively to Auburn and Alabama. Or scenario B is 9 and 3, but they lose those three games by a combined eight points. And it's nail-biter city, and it just so happens that better teams in Tuscaloosa and pick two of them, I don't care, Auburn, Florida, it's just hard fought, and they don't get out-executed, and they don't throw the games away. It's just they didn't stack up this year roster-wise good enough, but they still played with the same edge that they did the year before. I'm taking the 9-3 and three scenario over the 10-2 and two scenario all day long. Because here's the bottom line. Even when LSU was what they were before this year, they could roster their way to nine wins, and in some years, 10 wins, but yet you still knew at the end of the year, there is a gap between us and Alabama, and therefore there's a gap between us and the top tier of college football. If you're thinking beyond 2020, you're thinking 2021, 22, 23, you see how they're recruiting. Guys, talent's not going to be an issue for them, and, and converting it into skill, which is a lot less frequently talked about than talent, but is more important than just the talent, that's not going to be an issue for them either. I don't think in the foreseeable future. But the identity and DNA and makeup, the mental makeup collectively of the program, that's what you want to make sure is intact. And if it's intact, I don't care if they go 9-3 and three this year, you'll be able to tell why, if they lose to Alabama, how do they lose to them? What does the game look like? I, I can assure you I don't expect 31-13 to 13 um, on the side of the Crimson Tide this year if the DNA has been properly injected and then it's been harnessed because you can turn over all the other stuff as long as you have the foundation laid. That's the expectation. That's what's reasonable. It's reasonable to expect Ed Orgeron to earn his money in maintaining the identity that they forged last year, independent of what the record's going to be this year. Because the record will be back. Man, they got a lot to overturn this year. They got a lot to replace. And they don't get to do it in this vacuum of a weak conference like some others may get to do. They got to do it right smack dab in the middle of the toughest division, most competitive division in college football. So it's very realistic to drop off to 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 and still be one of the 10 best teams in the country. If that is the path they go this year, I'm not worried about LSU at all. I think they'll be just fine. All right, let's move on. Uh, and some Q&A here. And again, the Q&A on the end of our shows on YouTube, a little bit different. It's kind of a preview. You know, what I'm about to do here is this very condensed preview of what the entire Late Kick Extra podcast is. So if you haven't already subscribed to the Late Kick Extra podcast, I mean, I guess it's just called the Late Kick with Josh Pate. The title of the show on Wednesdays is Extra. And give us those five-star reviews and those written reviews. Ray. Actually, this is from the podcast review comment section. I encouraged you to do it. Ray did it. A lot of you did it. And I'm going to get to all of you on the Wednesday podcast. But this was a really good question that I wanted to hit tonight only because I was talking to someone in this field this week. Ray says, as I know, you're well aware how college football is always evolving and usually the most successful teams are at the forefront of that evolution. I know you've mentioned Alabama's new strength and conditioning staff, but what other things and what other teams do you also see making that jump to be ahead of others and what are they doing? 
I'm not privy to the inner workings of all these programs. I am privy to the inner workings of some of them. Ray, he also, and some, some of you also asked, like, how do you see it? And where does the rubber meet the road on this stuff? How could you ever definitively tell who's got the better strength and conditioning programs? Most of the time you can't. To the naked eye, you probably can't. But here's what I rely on. People inside that industry, not just coaches, not just administrators, but also people in the strength and conditioning and sports science fields, that portion of the college football industry, as I like to call it, LSU was phenomenal at it. They've been phenomenal at it. They have overturned a lot of their program in the sports science aspects and the strength and conditioning aspects for a couple of years. Uh, Ohio State is phenomenal at that. And I'm, there are going to be a lot I don't name that are doing a good job. But when I was talking about Alabama the other day, I was mentioning them as having fallen behind, not in just my opinion, but his, Nick Saban, because we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and he said as much, and the opinions of some other people in his program and other people around the SEC that I'd spoken to, a field that they were once at the forefront of, strength and conditioning, 10 years ago, they had fallen behind him. And so I started asking more questions. And first off, the answers across the board are the team they just hired of Dr. Matt Ray and David Ballou in very short time will put them right back at the forefront of the college football industry when it comes to strength training, sports science, all that stuff. I mean, they, they will be right at the head of the pack again very quickly. Like you'll see immediate return on that investment. You'll see it this year. But some of you were asking, and Ray was kind of hinting at this as well, how does it all translate? And essentially, what I take that to mean is when you break it down into layman's terms, which I have to do to be able to talk about it, obviously, when you break it down into layman's terms, how do we explain this? This new evolution from just strength and conditioning to all of a sudden everyone talks about sports science. Well, what is that really? So I asked one of these strength guys that I'm in pretty frequent contact with, break this down. Like Michael Scott, I want you to explain this to me like I'm five years old. And they did. They used uh, actually a metaphor that I've used on this show before, the old, the old cup metaphor, the old thermos metaphor. Now, those of you listening on the podcast can't see what I'm holding in my hand. You're going to have to pretend. But think about strength training like this. Think about strength training as a cup. And this is old school versus new school. It used to be that everyone was focused on strength, 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 bigger, faster, stronger, but mainly bigger and stronger because, you know, you've just got speed. I mean, speed is speed. You're born with it, which in a lot of ways is true. What you would do is you would take 100% of the time and energy that you focus per week on strength training, and let's just turn that metaphorically into liquid in a cup. And you're just pouring it and pouring it and pouring it, and it fills up halfway, fills up three quarters of the way. And even though you've only used up 80% of your weekly time and energy that you're gonna spend on this, the cup's already full. Well, you keep pouring, you still got 20% to go. What happens to the liquid that you keep pouring for the final 20%? It just spills out of the cup, and then you take the cup, and then you pour it out on the field on Saturday, and you got a full cup to pour out there. It's gonna be really good. And as long as no one's really advanced in the sports science field, you're still going to beat everyone. Because, hey, if you're in Alabama, your cup's bigger than everyone else. But then here's what happens. What happens is you're still pouring in your cup every year because it's working for you. But then someone else has the bright idea to go out and get this great big bowl. And they set the bowl down on the table. But then they set the cup inside the bowl. And they start pouring. 
and they pour, 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 and they're still focusing on a lot of the stuff that you focused on a decade ago, and the cup gets full. I've only used 80% of my energy and focus on strength training. The cup's full, but then I keep pouring, keep pouring, keep pouring. Difference being the sports science aspects of this, they are kind of the bowl that captured the rest of the liquid. And 100% of the time and the energy that you invested into this portion of your program, you now get to keep because the bowl caught the residual. And the residual is sort of the extra. It's the cherry on top that the sports science aspect adds into the old school techniques that in some cases still work. And when you watch on TV on Saturday, there is no way to know, you know, if a guy goes down to a knee injury, and then next quarter, a guy goes down to what looks like a bad injury, but oh well, clap him off the field. He got up and jogged away, crisis averted. There's no way to know any one given injury. Ooh, poor strength and conditioning practices caused that one. Ooh, our really advanced sports science prevented that injury. But the cumulative effect over the course of a season, when you start seeing two and three years together now where your injuries continue to reduce and the recovery times continue to improve, that's when you all of a sudden see it. And then when you look cumulatively again over the span of a few years and you realize the bowl capturing that extra investment that you make in your program is, is indeed capturing it all and you can use it now and you can harness it now because you have the resources to do it, then all of a sudden you see a few more wins over the span of that time frame. You may even see a championship in there. But the bottom line, uh, to lay it down, the bottom line is the focus of these programs and these street training programs is to keep players on the field. Like, that's it. I had a back and forth with a guy in a comment section today who argued vehemently. He thought he was arguing against me, and he's arguing against Nick Saban because the guy said, you're crazy. You suggested that LSU's strength and conditioning and sports science program bypassed Alabama? That's insane. We just suffered from a bunch of injuries the past two years or else we would have beaten them. And it's like, I understand the irony slapping him in the face. He just feels the slap but doesn't know where it's coming from. They couldn't keep kids on the field because of what we're talking about. And that is no longer, again, isolated examples could just be anecdotal, but we have a ton of evidence, years worth of evidence now. Nick Saban himself felt the need to make the change. If he saw it, and if they saw it internally, and they already felt like going in a different direction even before all this Scott Cochran stuff kind of, kind of opened the spot up and opened the door for him, then well, who am I to refute it? I'm just going along with it. And in most cases, when I'm talking about anything scientific, I can assure you I am relying on the words that someone far more informed than I has shared with me. So that's what I'm doing right now. But it's a totally new world. You would have your mind blown, because I've had my mind blown, talking to people about what they focus on now. Now, the one I've mentioned a couple of times, and you guys asked me about it, um, the, the ocular vision, yeah, LSU was really big on this last year, ocular strength. Talking about which eye is dominant. And therefore, now let me tell you how nuanced and how granular they get on this stuff. Um, I'm not going to get too deep on this because I'll just screw it up. But when you break down this stuff at the granular level that they do, and they get into the ocular strength, and they get into charting which side of the field your receiver performs better on, they have this data set to where they'll show what looks inexplicable. You'll have a receiver 
that they had a, a, a 98% completion percentage on one side of the field and 72 on the other. And what they determine is one of his eyes is stronger than the other. It's ocular strength. The, the science behind it's incredible, and I can't even pretend to understand it. But I'll tell you one they pointed out to me, an LSU person pointed out. We're looking at B-roll, if you're watching on YouTube, of the SEC championship game. Now, obviously, in highlight packages, we don't show videos of players dropping balls. But I believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was like Justin Jefferson. There was a wide-open touchdown that LSU dropped in this game. And so when I'm talking to the LSU folks, I'm talking about the ocular vision, and I'm not talking at all. I'm sitting there with my mouth wide open listening. That's the kind of pass they pointed out. When you watch a guy, I think about Jerry G with Alabama. There were some key games this past year where he'd drop balls. It's just inexplicable. Like he's, you think he's the best receiver in America. You'll watch big time receivers all the time. And you'll see them drop balls. They do it in the NFL. Uh, they, I'm not going to mention the names. They gave me some NFL players, and th they ran the data sets on them with the ocular vision and the strong side, weak side of the field for their reception totals. And it will blow your mind. And they've determined it all comes down to ocular vision. So the point is, you sit there and you think about strength training, strength and conditioning, sports science. You think about how much can you squat? How much can you bench? How much can you power clean? This is the kind of stuff they're doing. To understand how deep that goes and how much you have to stay on top of things and how much you have to evolve year over year over year. you got to update 15% of your program year over year over year. And sometimes your success can cripple you because the last thing on earth anyone thinks they need to do when they're winning is change. And that's how you get bypassed. But fortunately for a school like Alabama, they can afford to get right back to the front of the line. And I think they're going to. But the sports science stuff... I would encourage you to read up on it as much as you can. Most of it you're not going to understand, at least I don't, but it gives you a small glimpse into the window that is the next big thing in college football. That is the separator. It used to be, again, like 10 years ago, for a little while, if you just had the superior strength training program, you could bludgeon people to death, and you could win 11 games minimum that way. If you had the best athletes, just get them as big and strong as possible, and just bang, 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 lean, 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 you win. But then enough people figure that out, or enough people adapted and evolved their own methodology to where you had to adapt. And that's where we are now. Strength training is still very important. But then you also talk about the scientific approach, and that's still, in a lot of ways, in the sports world, you're still sort of at the dawning of that new era, which leads me to wonder what we'll be like in 2030. So, been a good show tonight. Again, we have got Memorial Day tomorrow. So, happy early Memorial Day to everyone. Our schedule is still going to be the same this week. So, get your questions in for the Late Kick Extra podcast. We'll do that on Wednesday. We'll release it on Wednesday. We will record it on Tuesday. Also, we will be back here, same time Thursday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. We have had, and I want to stress, phenomenal traffic on this platform, the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. We have had phenomenal traffic on the podcast, not just mine. Barton and Butter doing a really good one. Um, the College Football Daily, which they've had me on a couple times. I don't know if that's the brightest idea in the world for them. Needless to say, we have a whole lot of really good stuff coming your way and more ideas daily are sort of getting the training wheels put on them and then hopefully taken off. So. Uh, look forward to all that and look forward to talking to you again Wednesday, seeing you again Thursday. Until then, for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani and the podcasting department, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great week.